Last week, I downloaded some sounds from a YouTube to MP3 link that led to pornographic images on my computer for the preceding 48 hours until I worked out how to troubleshoot that. So just want to say I'm committed to this podcast. They were porn pop-ups, weren't they? They were. Yeah. Yep. Lot of singles in my local area. David Cunliffe remains about as popular in the Labour caucus as a pussycat at Gareth Morgan's house. Look, this is a la-la budget when my eyebrow goes up. It's a joke. Police still arrest criminals in New Zealand. We've tried cannabis prohibition for the past 14 years. The fact is, that was a boring, useless speech. Sip it, sweetie, I'm getting there. Mr. Singer, they say a week is a long time in politics. Hello and welcome to the Iron Duke Podcast, your weekly catch-up of all things policy and politics, where we go through our interesting bits, peaks and pits, and anything that fits from around New Zealand and the world. I'm joined by Madison Burgess-Smith for another great episode. What's on this week's podcast, Maddie? We are going to run you through rampant crime across our communities. We're going to talk a little bit about the hot water the Leader of the Opposition has found himself in. We're going to talk about house prices on the decline for the first time in the history of the universe, and we're also going to touch on Grounded Kiwis. Byron, take us away. What's your peak of the week? So my peak of the week is the Grounded Kiwis court decision in the High Court here in Wellington. Now, what had happened here is Grounded Kiwis was a group of New Zealand citizens who were overseas during the COVID-19 pandemic and the time that we had our borders closed to them. This group decided that the government's border settings were too harsh for them and also impeded on their right to return to New Zealand. Who would have thought? The initial case brought to the High Court focused in on a period of time between September and December 2021 when we had the god-awful lottery system. So you just waited in line and told you you were number 22,246 for 3,000 places. The High Court considered the MIQ system as a whole. They provided their feedback on that. And they also considered the lottery system. And they had a couple of interesting findings. Some good things for the government and some good things for grounded Kiwis. But overall, what I really like about this, I'll get to the details in just a second. What I really like about this is it shows that we are considering our COVID response and actually doing some thinking around was it right, was it wrong, how could we improve it in the future. So what was the outcome? For the most part, the judge said that MIQ was a justified restriction on the rights of New Zealanders because of the extraordinary health crisis that we faced. So fair enough, government gets a tick for the quick way it was set up and they also get a tick for essentially what they believe, the court believe was the right policy response in the interim. Where it gets tricky for the government and where Grounded Kiwis actually won and they can proceed is that the lottery system actually failed to acknowledge any special circumstances. And that is the crux of Grounded Kiwi's case. And that's bloody hard, though. So, like, how do you start to prioritise that sort of stuff? You need to have an exemptions framework. They even they, So, a matrix, basically. Yeah, the judge said you needed to have an exemptions framework. They said there was supposed to be an exemption framework to ameliorate the inequities. What of does the, that word even mean? To address the inequities within the system. Even that set of criteria for the exemptions framework was proven to be not good. Like the judge just said this was not an effective way to do it. It was wrong. So is there a whole piece there? So when you talk about, you know, like having a framework that actually makes things fair, what if you were coming from the Cook Islands where there was no COVID? Surely you shouldn't have to go into a lottery. Correct. You got it. Wow, interesting. It. So this is the judge saying that when you had the lottery system and you didn't allow people, just like you said, mm. that posed next to no health risk to come into New Zealand, you put them through a lottery, wrong. So anyway, 
That was my peak of the week. Maddie? Look, another one for me, necessary evils, rising interest rates. Reserve Bank hikes by a double for the first time in a decade. Yeah, good. Sounds good. And what that has meant for house prices, which are now on the slippery slope back downwards. So we've seen a negative 1.5% rise in uh, Auckland, negative 0.6% in Wellington, negative 0.2% in Christchurch. So whilst they're not falling off the face of the earth, house prices have begun to slow, which was what all of this was about. It's going to be a bloody long time before houses are affordable in this country. We need to probably talk a little bit more about what rising interest rates mean for the cost of living crisis and what that means for households, but that's not what I'm talking about here as my peak today. My peak is that we've finally found an intervention that's been there all along on how to slow house price growth. And also deal with inflation, right? I mean, the Reserve Bank taking the first steps to address inflation – but also, as you're saying, this affects house prices and starts to bring them off the board. Yeah, so it's not just about house prices and how affordable houses are for people to grow. A lot of the reason we've had inflation is because people have had all of this fake money. The house that they bought for $500,000 over the course of a year was now worth $700,000 and interest rates were so cheap you could just about borrow that money for free mm. to go on and spend it on all sorts of other things. There's been a lot of money coming back into the economy that just doesn't exist. It's not money people have earned. It's not real money that's been inserted into the economy. It's just quantitative easing. So I'm excited to see that. Pretty concerned about what it means for a lot of middle New Zealand families who perhaps are over leveraged on their mortgages. But look, we've been crying for this for the last four political cycles and here it is. We yet to see it translate into rent relief though and, and reduction in rent. So yeah, I think rents that, are up fifty. Yeah, exactly. So for some part so if you're a first thousand. home buyer kind of family looking for a new house, this is great. However, if you're you're stuck in generation rent. Uh, not good. Believe me, not good. What is your pit of the week then, Mr. Terrace? So my pit of the week is the leader of the opposition, Mr. Christopher Chris Brackets Luxon. He is he Chris to, or Christopher? Uh, it depends. If you read his Twitter handle, it's Christopher. But if you read his Twitter name, it's Chris. So I'm just as confused. But all I know is that he did, in fact, used to run a small airline. <laughs> yeah, I think it was Air Chathams, if, if I'm it's good little, good little. Shut company. up. And so Chris has had a very difficult week of interviews. Now, of course, we all know he's new to politics. We all know that, he, yes, he's a business dude, been around the world, you know, Unilever and in New Zealand, all that carry on. But he has not been put up against really competent and hard political analysts until last week. He had you mean f- Jackie T. And those three interviews painted a very different picture of Mr. Luxon than, say, his ZB soundbites, as um, Matthew Hooten likes to describe him. So he started the week off with a disastrous interview with Jack Tame, where he had no detail and really struggled. He even went bright red. I mean, listen to this. Specifically, what government spending that your party opposed has led to that inflation? Well, look, I think there's, the reality is this. The government is spending $128 billion in government spending. What have you opposed? So what I would say to you is that the, the, the role is to go through all of that existing $100 billion mm-hmm. plus of spending. As a percentage of government spending, what is $100 million for a train to Hamilton? Well, it's a small... I get, I get it. It's 0.07%. So that was pretty difficult for him. And that's, that started off a pretty low week. And then, of course, the Twitterati started saying, oh, God, that was a bit of a disaster. I hope he doesn't do it again. Oops. Jumps on to Teo with uh, Moana and focused an interview on co-governance and on the Māori Health Authority and what they would do. Again. Choo-choo train wreck. Under a line of questioning that you could have seen coming from a mile away, Mm. Luxon didn't have the strength of response and the lines 
that he should have been ready for. Okay, I'm going on a program to talk about Māori, to talk about co-governance, to talk about Māori outcomes. They'll probably ask about those They'll three topics. They'll probably ask about those three topics, yeah. and I probably should have a couple of lines ready, and I should <laughs> also be prepared for it instead of like going, I don't know what I'm going to say. Like, I mean, just listen to this. Do you think that it's feasible that... Um, Māori would have ceded sovereignty. I think we are one sovereign country, Article 1 of the treaty. You know, that's what that's about. Te Tiriti. Uh, of the treaty. Te, te Tiriti. What well, is in well te we have tiriti. different interpretations. No, what well, is in Te Tiriti? Well, what I'm saying to you is I think that, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the articles going, first article is really about ceding sovereignty, no, that we're one not. country. Second article is about rangatiratanga, that the people can So have. You're, you're talking about the English text that was signed by about 50 people. And lastly, on Kill Him, Kim Hill. Copied someone else's just, homework. She just copied someone else's homework and nailed him again. And it was it's kind of like, okay, you don't have your lines on tax. Why should we give a tax cut to middle New Zealand? I mean, he keeps talking about, oh, we're going to take away the top tax bracket. He can't say why, though. And then he gets really nervous when he gets asked. He's like, that's an $18,000 a year tax cut for you, buddy. Why do you need it? And... He kind of said, oh, 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 I don't actually need it. Come on, man, have, a, have, have something to say. If you're going to have a policy, defend, defend the it. children. Defend it. I think we need to demand better from our leader of the opposition. Just, just write to him. He needs to get better lines, <laughs> he needs to get better with media, and he needs to sort his shit because he is you know, the alternative Prime Minister. Regardless of whether you like him or not, that's just the reality of things. A shout out to Martin Bradbury for comparing Luxon to David Shearer in the same sentence saying no one wants to be compared to David Shearer. Maddie, talk to me about your pit of the week. My pit of the week is crime. And criminals. And criminals. And young Crim- criminals. Young criminals. Just every time you open any news page at the moment, someone's been ram raided again. Or shot in Dixon Street in Central Wellington. Some- Jesus Christ, what the f*** is going on? So I'm going to run you through a couple of them. Like Hamilton, the other day, four kids aged between 7 and 12 went and like robbed a mall to steal toys. Shopping centres in Auckland that have been ram-raided several times now. Bottom of Queen Street got hit. Louis Vuitton, Gucci. Oh, the funniest thing about that was a commentator said, yeah, the cost of living crisis is really hitting. That's why people are doing ram-raids. Sorry, if you're ram-raiding Gucci, I don't think it's the result of a cost of living crisis. No, you'd be ram-raiding New World to get your broccoli. Exactly. In her response, the police minister referred to uh, COVID spikes as being a reason for uh, increase in police um, response times. And I asked her a very clear and direct question. Has crime increased or decreased during COVID spikes? She didn't She didn't address that at all. Look, Poto Williams has made some real marginal calls lately. She's the police minister, She right? is the minister of the Popa. Mm. The, the Poto of the Popa. Nice. She has gone on record and said it's not just the responsibility of police to police crime. And look, I, I get where she's coming from. There is the need for larger wraparound support within our community. So when we look at those four kids who went and robbed a toy store, mm. people will turn and say, you know, that's the responsibility of their parents. Well, it, it takes a village to raise rangatahi. Like, we do need to be doing more to address the underlying socioeconomic challenges of a lot of these people. We know that poverty is a facilitator of crime, for example. But where some people, during a cost of living crisis, move to getting a second or a third job, these people are turning to ram raiding stores for clothing or dairies for... Sigs. Yeah, among other things. No, it's very challenging. I mean, the, the social development system must play a role in supporting these people. Simple as that. Yeah, I mean, you hit out at Chris Luxon. One of the ones he doesn't quite have his lines on is justice. You can't keep running the soft on crime 
line anymore. He's come out and said, well, we need to change some of our pursuit laws, which is correct. We've got such soft police pursuit laws that if you're in a car, you can virtually get away with anything. He's also been harping on about firearms policy. Yeah, no, I get that as well. Um, Reintegrating the gang task force. I mean, strike force raptor is something fundamentally different. And I get all that. But I think what we need to start looking at is that, you know, 30% of New Zealanders are in some form of material poverty. It's not actually about do we need to incarcerate more people? Do we need to keep them locked up for longer? We need to understand what the underbelly of New Zealand actually looks like and what is turning people there. The enterprising thought that went into those kids' minds that said, I'm going to go get a car at age 11, smash into a toy world, get my favourite Lego set and then take it home. How can we turn that enterprising thought into a small business idea? How can we turn that into a productive thought rather than a unproductive we'll thought? We'll wrap a ministry around it. Ministry for Enterprising Children. So from one depressing conversation about crime in New Zealand, we're going to start talking about climate change. And joined today by Eric Crampton, not Eric Clapton, Eric Crampton, the Chief Economist from the New Zealand Initiative, to talk about the emissions trading scheme. We are joined on the podcast this morning by Eric Crampton of the New Zealand Initiative. Now, Eric, you will know, is a regular columnist across a number of media platforms. You've lectured, you are an amazing commentator in a heap of spaces, but the reason we've got you here this morning is to talk ETS. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So this week you had a cracking column in Newsroom talking about the emissions trading scheme and its effect on forestry and some decisions the government made. But before we get into the detail of this, what is the emissions trading scheme and why does it matter to New Zealand's climate change response? The emissions trading scheme should be the linchpin for our entire climate change response. Carbon emissions are basically an externality, right? Yep. Most people don't worry about the cost of the climate of their driving or whatever else. And so they impose a cost on other people. Economists say, well, you internalize that cost somehow. Mm-hmm. Try and figure out what the cost of the carbon is to the rest of society, make people bear that cost, and then they'll make optimal decisions. Now, there are two ways of achieving that. One is with a price on carbon, which is just a carbon tax. Mm -hmm. That can work. The other is with an emissions trading scheme. You cap the total amount of carbon that physicists say is safe or some amount, right? There's a political decision about how much is going to be allowed. You set the cap. The government then issues credits. New Zealand has the world's most comprehensive and cleanest ETS, as best I'm aware, except for agriculture. Well, that's a bit of a political bugbear, right? Well, getting ag in will matter. Getting a price on agricultural emissions will matter. But we cover comprehensively across tons of sectors. If you're running a coal boiler for industrial process heat, you're having to buy carbon credits for the emissions. If I go to the fuel station and I go and fill up my car for petrol, the fuel companies have purchased 2.45 kilograms of carbon emission rates on your behalf for every liter of fuel that you purchase. So where are these credits created? So the government issues credits. Now, they can't guarantee when somebody's going to redeem these credits, Mm -hmm. and there are credits that people bought in a prior period that could be redeemed sometime, but the government only releases so many credits, and that sets the binding cap. When you hit a certain price level, they also have a price cap. At the price cap, the government will issue a few more credits. The first tranche of those come out of the sort of reserve that the government sets. The government's been worried about these stockpiled credits. They've been trying to drive down those stockpiles by releasing fewer credits than they're actually happy to release in a year. 
they're hoping that that drives the price up and encourages people to start using up these stockpiled credits. Right. But if that doesn't work and you're hitting the price cap, then they go up to the full amount of credits that they were happy to have released. If that still isn't enough, then they can issue more, but those new credits are a pretty neat sort. They have to be backed. So when the government releases these extra ones that are beyond the cap that it had set, they have to find some way of offsetting the effects of it. Mm -hmm. Now, ideally, you'd want to be offsetting it automatically, and we proposed a mechanism for doing it that would make a lot more sense than what the government is doing. Right now, they're talking about things like, well, planting some trees on crown land to offset the effects of the credits that they'd issued at the cap. One way or another, they're backed credits. In a way, they're then net zero credits, right? You've had the cap, you release a few more credits, but you're offsetting the effects of them at the same time, it washes out. Okay, so that sets a binding cap. A lot of things that you might think will reduce overall net emissions don't really do that, right? So if you switch from a petrol vehicle to an EV, the binding cap is still the binding cap. Somebody else purchases the carbon credits at auction Instead of the fuel company on your behalf, it might be somebody else. But it doesn't change. Just because you're right. not using that credit doesn't mean it goes away. That's right. It doesn't change unless the government cuts the cap, right? The only thing that reduces net emissions within the sector covered by the ETS is cutting the cap faster. That's the only thing that can do it. And so is the government at the moment cutting that cap? Is the cap coming down over time or is it just kind of staying stagnant? It is starting to come down. Unfortunately, people never really kept up with how the ETS has changed over time. So for about a decade, the ETS wasn't really an ETS. It was more like a very low carbon tax. Okay. So until only a couple of years ago, there was no binding cap in the ETS. The government just issued credits, fixed price offer at about $20 a ton for carbon. What's the price now? A little north of 70. Oh, okay. It had gotten a a little past 80 earlier in the year, and then it came down a bit. Right. And again, stockpiling. Well, say that I'm in a business that emits a lot of carbon. It's just a hedge, right? In the same way that you might want to buy futures options against any other input into your business so that you mitigate these risks, you will also want to do that with carbon. Yeah. That's just plain business planning, right? Or... You could be speculating on that market and say, well, I expect the carbon prices are going to go up and I want to get a piece of that action. And I'll flip them. Are investments banked into this? Are they doing this already? Can I just Uh, bring up my share trader and say, hey, can I buy some carbon credits? You you can buy carbon credits, yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. So the core of our emissions reduction plan is the ETS. Yep. And then there are all these other complementary measures. But the government quite likes to say, we've just bought some electric ferries for Auckland Transport. We've just kind of sent some money to Fonterra to have a biomass boiler, wood boiler, wood, wood burner. Wood chip wood thing. Chip yep. thing, rather than coal. What's the what's the trade-off here? Because I feel like there are funds everywhere. Yeah, what's, what's, yep. what's your take on that kind of relationship? We can usefully distinguish between two types of policy that could sit beside the ETS. The first one is the one that you described and is just stupid. Nice. It won't really do anything. So again, the binding cap is the binding cap. Yep. If you think that emissions should come down faster, cut the cap faster. If the government goes and buys a whole pile of EVs, it could be a totally sensible business decision, right? You weigh up the lifetime running cost of one type of propulsion for vehicles, run the lifetime cost of the other one. It could be a hard-nosed decision. In that case, it's all fine. But if you're going over and above that because you think it's helping the environment, Mm. it doesn't really help. If you're buying fewer carbon credits, somebody else is buying those credits instead Mm -hmm. unless the cap has come down. So those kinds of policies are just dumb. You wind up paying above the odds for doing nothing. Critics would say, oh, oh, you can't just do ETS alone. Mm -hmm. Well, there are some policies that would make sense alongside, right? As carbon prices go up, 
new problems will start emerging. You'll start discovering things that might be an issue that might be a local issue. It might be a national issue. You could find out, for example, well, maybe there's a problem in getting people to uptake EVs if there aren't enough charge points around. I don't think we're in that world. There's been plenty of investment in charge points. Lots of people have been laying these things out. But you can imagine scenarios where Nobody wants to buy an EV because there's no charge point. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to install charge points because nobody has EVs. And you could imagine if you were in that world, government coming in and say, okay, well, we're going to make sure that there is a network of charge points along State Highway 1, major state highways, as a complementary measure that solves a market failure that isn't carbon, but will make it easier to mitigate. That's right. So there can be lots of other market failures that you discover along the way, and then you develop tools that are specific to those failures rather than also targeting carbon. There's something that economists call the Tinbergen rule. This came up in the 1950s. The basic idea of the Tinbergen rule is if you're trying to hit lots of birds, you need lots of stones. (laughs) If you're throwing one stone at many birds, you're gonna miss all of them. Yeah, nice. Right? The Tinbergen rule says you need at least as many stones as you have birds that you're trying to hit. The ETS is hitting the carbon bird, right? That's our big stone, got a giant catapult, throwing the boulder at- A rather large bird. Yes. Like a mower. And they're bigger than that, (laughs) right? But there are lots of other ones around. So you need other stones, right? You have to develop separate instruments for all of these other policy problems that might come up. If you try to bundle those into the ETS, you're going to screw up our carbon response while not solving the problem that you think you're trying to solve. Got it. You've talked about how government is trying to use the ETS stone to solve a whole bunch of problems that are emerging as a result of plantation forestry. Can you give us a bit of an overview about what you discussed there? There's been a discussion document from the Ministry for the Environment and the Ministry for Primary Industries that had a very salubrious introduction from a couple of ministers saying how wonderful the ideas are in this document and how they want to do them. But the discussion doc, it's from the ministries, and they propose that permanent exotic forests that sequester a lot of carbon very quickly will no longer be allowed to generate carbon credits within the ETS. Now, they have identified a few things that they see as problems with a lot of plantation forestry. They came up even back during the billion trees scheme Mm -hmm. when the government decided that actually they love trees and they wanted to subsidize them and screw up a whole pile of other stuff to try and encourage more tree planting. Shane Jones's best legacy. Oh, my God. One BT. Let's do it again. And that's where we saw the emergence of Fifty Shades of Green. Now, you can imagine imagine ones around environmental effects or biodiversity Mm. or perhaps increased risk of forest fire. Responding to those by saying, okay, well, we're just no longer going to recognize the carbon that's sequestered in a permanent forest. That's the stupidest way of approaching it, right? We're still having plantation forests for non-permanent ones, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We still plant trees for lumber. We still plant a lot of pine for that. If they're bad, they need to be addressed by something that would cover all of those trees, right? Not just stopping permanent ones. If you think about plantation forests, they've got all of the problems of the permanent ones, plus you've got slash when you cut them down, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And we've seen problems with mismanaged slash. The government has a net emissions goal. That's what's written into the Zero Carbon Act. We don't have a gross emissions goal. Net emissions are minus the amount that's sucked out of the atmosphere, whether by a tree or some industrial process or something else. It's the um, accumulation of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that matters, not whether you've emitted a whole pile to start with and then sequestered some or emitted less in the first Mm. place, right? Got it. Is the role of the Climate Change Commission to monitor this? Is it, are they the accountants? Are they the climate accountants? Are they the Deloitte of climate change? Well, <laughs> it's the Environmental Protection Agency that runs the ETS. They the hold cli- the ledger. Yeah. They hold the ledger. The uh, Climate Commission gives a lot of advice. It's essentially, you've got the Ministry of Environment, EPA, Climate Change Commission, all looking after this one system. 
these are just going to be a bit of confusion naturally in there. Not to what? mention your Ministry of Primary Industry people saying, oh, we don't like the trees. Yeah, coming back onto that trees point as well, going through that discussion document, one of the you know the calls that they made is this is going to basically push the carbon price so low that people won't bother changing their behaviour. This is just nuts. So for the past few years, the government keeps putting up these initiatives like EV subsidies yeah. and taxes on bad people who drive bad cars that uh, Wellington bearded types don't like. I hope Mr. Phil O'Reilly is not listening to that. <laughs> I don't think he's one of those types. He certainly is the opposite. Just about 40 cylinders yeah. between, his, between his vehicles. You could not push the carbon price high enough for him to transition. <laughs> and, and that's fine, right? That just reveals that his cost of changing is a lot higher than others. And that's... What the system is designed to discover, right? Completely. So whenever the government has put up one of these schemes, every time the response from the bureaus and the Wellington chin strokers, oh, well, you don't understand. This will let us cut the cap faster. No, you don't and, understand. And, and, Get out there into the real world. Well, we, we yell back at them, you can just cut the cap faster without doing the policy. Forests are reducing a whole pile of net carbon. That should mean that if the government wanted to reduce the carbon cap faster, they'd be able to do it, right? They'd be able to reduce net emissions more quickly without driving the price up into levels where they start worrying about political effects. But where they use, oh, well, we could cut the cap faster as justification for bullshit policies that they want to push for other reasons, they forgot that they can do that anyway. when it comes to forests that they hate for other reasons. <laughs> so, so you think that's what's holding them back? I think that they have ideological preferences that have nothing to do with carbon reduction and they are driven by other objectives. I want us to be able to get to net zero. We are not going to be able to do that if we keep choosing stupid ways of getting there that cost too much money. Cost effectiveness matters. Yes, it does. As is tradition on the Iron Duke podcast, we always finish with a quick fire hold or not. I'll kick it off because I've written mine down. Here they are. Pine trees as a concept. Hot. Mr. Tesla buying Twitter. Hot. And biodiversity credits. Actually hot. That would be a potential solution. Hot, hot, hot. Nice. Public transport subsidies forever. Not. <laughs> and lastly, 6% interest rates at your local bank. They should wind up higher if the Reserve Bank was doing its job. So I'm going to say not because they should go even higher. What a wonderful interview. Thank you so much for joining us. And we Thank look you. forward to your commentary uh, in the future. Thank you. It's Brilliant. been a lot of fun. Radio then, listeners, keeps are coming to the price of high carbon. Keep changing your behaviours because of good market interventions. And until then, we'll, we'll see, see you next week. week.